0: When you go to um, really fancy, you know, events, there's a speaker who introduces the person who's going to introduce the speaker. You ever been to one of those before? So tonight I'm going to be introducing the person who's going to be introducing the person. Okay. Um, but my name is Keith Case, and I'm a pastor here at uh, Providencia and Eight of us just got back from Dallas, Texas. Uh, yay for Dallas, Texas, right? And, and I have a, a small sore on the end of my tongue right now. That's why my lisp is very strong. Um, but we had this incredible time as a team out there uh, hanging out. And our denomination is uh, about 400 churches at this moment. And um, we're this small little church plant. We're only four years old. We have about 120 people here tonight. And... Um, we had eight people at the conference, and people were just like, man, look at these, these people. They're so full of life. They're, they're so, like, vibrant. Like, what's going on? And they would ask us about Providencia. And one of the things I love to tell them is that at our little church of 120 people, we probably have 10 bands represented here. I don't know if you know that or not, but we have about 10 bands here. We have about 10 actors here. Uh, as you know, Sarah Claire just finished Chicago uh, but we have uh, Michael and Sammy Connor there at uh, Lake Worth Playhouse. I think their show opens this Friday. And Preston, who goes to Dreyfus, his show opens the following Friday. Uh, so we have all these artists here. And then we have spoken word poets here as well. And then we have writers. We have people that are writer, like nonfiction writers. And we have all of these art. And we even have, guys, believe it or not, dancers. We have dancers here. And uh, my daughter's one of them. And there's this, there was this woman that we had this incredible honor of meeting, and she is the priest of dancing here in uh, Palm Beach County, in fact, in South Florida. If you ever go to her house, there'll probably be about 20 dancers there. Uh, half will be in the hot tub. The other half will be in the pool. She'll be feeding them. If you go to any dance performances here, like a collaborative dance performance, you uh, And She'll be on stage probably for a panel at the end, and everybody there, whether they live in Miami or they live here in Palm Beach County or they live in Broward, they know this woman. They know this woman because she not only has loved well the community of Palm Beach Atlantic and their dance department there, but she has loved our region well. So she is a pastor here at Providencia. She is a pastor here in our city. And we love her so much. And I want her to introduce her friend to you all now. So would you put your hands together for Jin Henley? Yep.
1: Hello, church. Wow, that was a great introduction. Well, as you heard, my name is Jin Henley. Um, I'm an artist, dancer, educator, wife, and child, and everything just like who you are. Yes, uh, today I'm here to introduce my dear friend, spiritual father, mentor, dance master, choreographer, everything. Um, Two things I want to tell about him. Number one, Pastor Keith, last night, make sure that don't forget to mention, is just like a lot of you know me as Michael Jackson and me, something big relationship about Michael Jackson and me, this man used to be the disco champion in Houston, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Back in those, uh, what, 1970s something, yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's something that you probably want to put in the back of your head. And uh, I just want to tell him, I don't know, I can tell you over and on and on and on of who he was and is, like uh, things that you can read in like a bio, but, um, the way he teaches or the way he creates, the way he communicates with the people, it really is like double wedged sword coming into your heart. So whenever I learn from him, I just, when he teaches me, I'm like dancing and crying um, because it's so deep in me. And when I was going through the darkest of my life, uh, nothing worked. No prayer, no friends, nothing worked. The only thing worked for me was those endless uh, sleepless nights watching one of his choreographies just over and over and over again until I fell asleep. So that's all I can say to you right now. So why don't you, here is Randolph Lynn, the disco champion of <laughs> Houston, Texas.
2: <laughs> Love it, I've got this. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm from Texas, so maybe I should say, howdy, y'all. Being from Texas, of course, we have this saying that everything in Texas is bigger. Um, We're a very large state. And uh, I have very good friends who are professional artists. Uh, One's from Finland. Her husband's actually from California, but they live now in Kansas City, Missouri. And we love each other deeply, but we have this little competitive thing going on, which is a cultural competition thing. And I was there a few years ago during the 4th of July. And they said to me, hey, tomorrow we have this incredible surprise for you. We are taking you to the largest fireworks display ever in the United States. I looked at this dude and said, are you serious? Jeremiah, do you know where I'm from? (laughs) I'm from Texas. (laughs) Everything in Texas is bigger. I don't believe that Kansas City is going to have a bigger fireworks display than Houston, Texas. He said, come and see. So, even though the display wouldn't have started till later on in the evening like 7.30, evidently this park was going to be very crowded, so we had to arrive quite early. It was a very hot day in Kansas City. We sat there for several hours, getting sunburned, and eating junk food and gluten and all this junk. And I'm thinking, come on. Finally, it was time to do the big countdown for this big fireworks display. So on it went. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Nothing. Something had gone wrong. It didn't work. They had a three-year-old daughter named Iris. All of a sudden, as everyone else is like silently shocked, you hear little Iris looking up, going, oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Daddy, it's beautiful. And I'm looking at this child and thinking, oh, my gosh, she's so right. It is beautiful. We were waiting for the manufactured gloss and glitter. She saw the transcendence of God. She saw the creation of God. She didn't know what fireworks were. (laughs) She had no clue. So to her, this was a display of the fireworks. And it taught me such a lesson. Have my eyes shifted from the beauty of what God has designed for me to see? in the beauty of how he wants to communicate to me that transcendent encounter with God? Or even as a believer, am I always looking for the fireworks of culture to amaze me? When God provides his own beautiful fireworks, the heavens declare the glory of the living God. When I was a child, I grew up in a Italian, Sicilian and Irish home. So we're talking mafia and boondock sinks, all living together in the same house. It was quite dramatic to say the least. Okay, let's be honest. It was extremely, extremely dysfunctional and abusive. I remember I was about five, I think, maybe six years old. The home where my grandmother lived was near a big Catholic church, Italians. And uh, I was playing around that neighborhood, and I decided that I just wanted to take a little journey into the church. It was during the weekday. And the door of the church was opened, and I walked into this kind of Catholic cathedral, and I was in awe. I walked in, and I got this sense of beauty. And I remember I looked up on the altar, and there was a candle that was burning on the altar. And all of a sudden, this gentleman said, young man, what are you doing here? And I said, I just walked in to look. And I said, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. I didn't know that he was a priest. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, what's the candle and the light that's on? And he said, oh, I'm happy to tell you about that. That means that the presence of God is here. And this light represents the flame of his presence. And I remember being this child, just so awestruck. Well, I didn't know later on that I would be going to this church, and I would be brought up in the Catholic faith. And I'm thankful for that time, but there were some things kind of growing up in an Italian home that were kind of interesting about that. Um, I remember when I was told that it was time for my first confession. And I wanted to make sure that however I entered into this, that I did it in the correct way because I wanted to be forgiving. The nun has spoken to us in our classroom in our catechism class about sin, about the outcome of sin. And purgatory didn't sound so great to me and hell definitely didn't sound great. And I was all but maybe nine years old at the time but I really wanted to get this burden off of me because I knew there were things that I did. I would hit my brother, I would take money off of my mother's desk. Um, I would say words that were naughty words, and I knew a lot of naughty words. So I asked the nun, was it important that I told everything? And she said, yes. You need to confess everything that you feel bad about. And I said, and so then I really have to be like really clear about it. She said, yes, you do. So I went to the priest and I said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. My sins are. And I begin to tell the priest every cuss word that a nine-year-old boy knows <laughs> in Houston, Texas. When we got to some of the big ones, <laughs> the priest finally said, son, it's enough. You can just say that you curse. I went out, I did my penance, and I thought, great, this is it. From this day forth, I get to appear before God and I am clean. And that lasted all but a few hours. And I went back home and I hit my brother again and I took more money off of my mother's desk and I still had a potty mouth. And this kept going on till the age of 12. And at the age of 12, I got really angry, extremely angry. I was angry about a few things. That I grew up in a house of law. My dad had been in the military. He had become mentally ill. He was in and out of mental hospitals in the veterans' hospital, the psychiatric units, over and over and over again. He was abusive, physically abusive, uh, emotionally abusive. And... So already, that aspect of law was so clear. I couldn't go to my dad for anything. And now I'm looking at this and putting the two and two together and thinking, God calls me to this game called holiness. While all the while, he knows I can't win. And that's maniacal. You don't invite someone to play a game and you know they have no chance of winning. So I thought, I don't have any opportunity to win this game called holiness, and God knows it. And then I go to jail, go directly to jail, and I do not get out, and that's just not fair. So at the age of 12, I said, God, forget you completely. I want out of this. This was not the God that I wanted to know in my life. Then I got involved in the arts. I became a professional dancer. Dance became my religion. Quite interesting enough, one of the first jobs I got as a dancer was in a Musical called Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) And I got cast as a disciple. It's like, oh, come on. (laughs) uh, But I'll never forget one evening two things, two songs. One was a song that Mary and Peter sing. And the lyrics say, I've been dying to see you, dying to see you, but it shouldn't be like this. This was unexpected. What do we do now? Should, can we, or should we start again, please? Or can we start again, please? And I remember thinking to myself, man, that would be so great if we could start again. But then I was also in one of the numbers where Simon the Zealot is singing, um, Jesus, I'm on your side. Touch me, touch me, Jesus. Jesus, I am with you. Kiss me, kiss me, Jesus. And then after all of this big celebration and all this really powerful choreography and everybody going wild and this political party in a sense, then all of a sudden Jesus begins to sing. And he says, neither you, Simon, nor the 50,000, nor the priests, nor the Jews, nor Rome, nor Jerusalem itself, understand what power is. You don't understand what glory is. You don't understand it all. And those words begin to speak to me. It wasn't long after that, that uh, there was a Japanese gentleman who invited me to a local church and I heard the gospel of beauty, the gospel of grace, because grace is absolutely beautiful. And that gospel of grace pierced my heart. And I encountered not just good doctrine, not just good ethics and morality, not a political gospel. I encountered the presence of the Lord. And I had, outside of that one time of being five years old, walking to that church, I had never had such a transcendent encounter in my entire life. I knew that the Holy Spirit was there. No one preached a sermon. I was actually watching a movie. There was a movie in the church that day. But then the presence of God just came into that place and began to bathe over my life. And I was arrested by the beauty of the Lord. Psalms 27, David says this. Excuse me one moment. This is what happens when you get over 20. Psalms 27, reading from the NIV, reading verse 4. One thing, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing have I desired, that will I seek to gaze upon the beauty of God. God is beautiful. Christ is beautiful. The Greeks had three prime virtues. They called them the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. As Paul began to minister in Greek culture, these virtues in a sense were baptized and redeemed because they were part of the virtues of God anyway into an understanding of good theology. God is good. God is true. But God is also beautiful. He's infinitely beautiful. And what he creates is beautiful. And when God creates, he creates from a heart of love. The motivation of everything that God creates is the love of God. And so God's beauty reveals his love. It reveals the attributes. The heavens declare the glory of God. I'm a pastor now, as well as a choreographer. It's a really schizophrenic job to have, one in the arts, one in theology. But to me, it really isn't schizophrenic. It works hand in hand, and it's beautiful. I'm from Texas. I'm kind of bothered by my own culture, to be quite honest with you all. Uh, We're very evangelical in Houston, Texas, in the Bible Belt. And I see that there's a new movement in a sense, maybe not so new, but it's to politicize the gospel. If somehow the powers that be in the political arena can just side with the Christian faith and good doctrine, then somehow we can win the world for Jesus. And so now there's this dominance in a sense towards let's get out our ethics and let's get out our apologetics into the mainstream culture and let's do that in whatever method we can. And if that means that that's dogmatic or it's done a little bit in a through tyranny, it doesn't matter. What's important is that the ethics and the apologetics somehow go forth. But I'm here to say that I believe that if all we do is focus on the ethics and the apologetics, the good and the true, and we negate the beautiful, or marginalize the beautiful in any way, shape, or form, then what is truly good, what is truly true of the gospel of Jesus, in a sense, just becomes dogma, because the culture is not tapping in to that. It's not inviting, and it's not inviting because it's not always presented beautifully, Often it's presented through protest or propaganda or it's politicized. And so then the culture is rejecting this. But where's the beauty? Where's the beauty of the Lord? When people walk into our congregation, when they see us interact with each other, will they leave here and say, man, that was beautiful. Man, that service today, it was beautiful the way christians interact the way christians reveal their faith it's beautiful the way that christians interact with the mainstream culture around them oh, man it's glorious it's so beautiful i don't know about you guys i work in the arts community my artist friends are not saying that about the church i'm not going to tell you what they say my artist friends aren't telling me that about christian community or the impact of christianity within the culture I've never heard them say, man, it's so beautiful. It's so glorious. As a believer that's working in the arts, I want to ask myself what's gone wrong. Isaiah 61, prophecy of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, and the next word is to. The anointing of the Spirit gives directive. It sends you somewhere. It takes you somewhere. It's a calling. To have the Spirit of God dwelling within you is a calling, and that calling moves you. It causes you to dance. Some of those directives, and the one of the directives, the specific one that really speaks to my heart, is to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. A crown of beauty instead of ashes a work of the Spirit of God, a work of the anointing of God is to bring forth beauty, redemptive beauty. This world needs to see and to hear redemptive beauty. I believe the ones who can bring that forth are what I call the artistic priest of God. I love the way that Keith introduced my friend. She's a priest of the Lord in the culture of dance. She's serving in the cultural arena of the arts as a priest before God. And that's who we are before the Lord. I like to use this term that I've kind of coined. I call it artist of Zion. I get it from Psalms 87. In Psalms 87, it talks about those that are born in Zion. And it says that God will say this one and that one they're born in Zion. At the end of the chapter, it says this. Let the singers and the dancers alike say, all of my springs exist in you, O Lord. Any singers and dancers in here? Yeah? Let the singers and the dancers alike say, all of my springs are in you. The wellsprings of my life exist because of you, O God. I am an artist born in Zion, the kingdom of God. I'm a priest before the Lord. I can actually minister beauty instead of the ashes, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God, thank you for that honor. Thank you for that privilege. And men will call you the priest of the Lord, servants of the most high God. What is it to be a priest and a servant through your giftings? I spoke at a big arts conference many years ago. We had over 600 people from all around the world. I thought, God, what do I say to these artists? Give me something that somehow they can leave and they can feel like they have been filled and they've got something to empower them on their journey because their, their interest was to integrate their artistry and their faith. So I was praying... And the Lord kept taking me to John chapter 13, where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And I thought, God, this is a beautiful passage, but come on, there's nothing artistic about this passage. And I felt the Holy Spirit challenge me and say, read again. And I kept reading it and reading it. And finally, again, just dialoguing with God. God, what is this about? What is artistic about this? And the Lord reminded me of a couple of things. When I was a child growing up with two older brothers and we fought a lot, I would defend myself by going into the washing machine and taking out towels that were wet and rolling those towels up, and man, they made a great whip. My brothers were so scared when I got that towel in my hand and pff, I could pop them. Another thing I enjoyed doing was taking the towels out of the dryer and then putting that towel in my own body. And the Lord said, you remember this is the way that you functioned as a child. You either used your towel to beat people with it or you used it to indulge yourself. But now I'm asking you to take that towel and as an artist, wash the feet of soiled humanity. Wash the feet of the broken. Son, are you willing to be a servant artist to work in the arena of redemption, to realize that this is the place That is so needed, this beauty of the Lord being translated into the church and into the culture. Interesting enough, Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments, these tablets of stone. It was artistic. There was a glory in it. But even though Moses is holding on to the law, the ethics, the apologetics, you could say, it's almost as if he stops and he says, you know what, God, P.S., just one more thing. Show me your glory. Where's your beauty? This is awesome. God, your law is awesome. But God, where's your beauty? Not too long after, this is what God says. Exodus 31. See Moses. In other words, Moses, pay attention, dude. (laughs) See Moses. I've chosen Bezalel. Anybody know Bezalel? He doesn't get too much popularity, unfortunately, but he should. Bezalel's name means under the shadow of God. Bezalel was called by God. God got Moses' attention about this guy. Bezalel had probably been a slave in Egypt building the pyramids. And God says, Moses, I've chosen Bezalel. I've chosen under the shadow of the Almighty God. And I've called him... To design for glory and for beauty, he built the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. The first mention of anyone being filled with the Spirit of God, and I'm not negating Moses. I think Moses is an incredible guy. I'd like to meet him someday. But it doesn't even say of Moses that he was filled with the Spirit of God. The first mention, and I believe the first mentions in the Bible are important. The first mention of anyone being actually filled with the Spirit of God was Bezalel. For what purpose? To design, to create, to bring forth beauty and to bring forth glory, to build a dwelling place on earth for the glory of God that would be a type and a shadow of what the kingdom of God was like. And Bezalel was anointed for this. So what I'm saying to you is not we're negating the Moses. We're saying, yes, we need the lawgiver. We need the preacher of the law, in a sense, the ethics, the absolutes, the morality of Christianity. But if we don't have the Bezalels that join together with the Moses, then we're negating something within the body of Christ and within Christian community. Because the Bezalels and the Moses have to learn to work together, hand in hand. we need each other. You know, Keith told me that there are artists in this church. You're needed. You're an important part of the body of Christ because you are the priest of the Lord as well, the creative priest of God, those born in Zion. But it's interesting that when Zion was taken into Babylonian captivity, Psalms 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung our harps upon the willow trees. It goes on in that prayer. It's a priestly prayer. It's it's the artistic priest who are writing this psalm, and they say, if we forget you, O Zion or Jerusalem, may our tongue cling to the roof of our mouth. Any singers here? Yeah? Do you allow your tongues to cling to the roof of your mouth as you're singing? No, how would it sound? Pretty stinking bad, huh? Prayer goes on. If I forget you, may my right hand forget its skill. Any musicians? Right-handed musicians here tonight? Yeah? So what if your right hand forgot its skill? So may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. May my right hand forget its skill if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And even the enemy began to taunt them and say, hey, Zion boy, sing us one of those songs of Zion. Because they knew that those songs of Zion were beautiful. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So I'm asking, where are the artists of Zion? Where are those who will participate in the redemptive work of God bringing forth the transcendent encounters with God through the offering, the sacramental offerings of beauty. Do you know art can be sacramental? It can be an offering of beauty before the Lord. Then I believe we're going to come into this Trinitarian balance of the good, the true, and the beautiful, working hand in hand. am going to close with the story. Vincent van Gogh. Vincent's desire was to follow in his father and his grandfather's footsteps. They were Dutch Reformed ministers. He went to theology school. In a sense, he was looked on as a failure. They allowed him to become a missionary and evangelist and sent him to the coal mines in Belgium. He was with the poorest of the poor. And he wanted to make sure that these people who lived in such impoverished lives could understand the significance and the worthiness of their life. So he began to sketch them in their daily occupations to reveal to them the beauty of who they really are. When Vincent paintings, painted Starry Night, if you really look at the painting, you're going to notice something quite interesting. First of all, the setting is in France, but within the setting, which is in France, if you look at the church that's in the painting, it's a Dutch Reformed church, the church that he was brought up in. The church in the painting, there are no lights on. There are lights in the community, in the little houses. There is no light in the church. But the brilliance of the light is in the cosmos, Starry Night, the beauty of the Lord. Because Vincent knew the heavens declare the glory of God. Right before he painted Starry Night, he wrote a letter to his brother. He wrote many letters to his brother. <laughs> Basically, he said this Teo, I feel as if I have the need for some religion. So I'm going outside to paint the stars. See, I think Vincent understood something that a lot of people don't understand, that God desires to reveal his beauty. So I'm gonna close with just a question. I take it we're believers. Do we believe in a God who is truly beautiful? Do we believe in a Jesus who is beautiful? Do we believe in a faith that is beautiful? Is God beautiful to you? Is this the way you see God? Is this the way you comprehend your relationship with him? He is beautiful. If for some reason you don't, if you see him as only the lawgiver, only the one who brings forth the good, and the true, the ethics, the apologetics, the morality, but there's no beauty in him, then I think something becomes extremely broken in our relationship with him if we really don't understand that he's beautiful. Because my encounters with the Lord is an encounter with this beauty of who he is. So I imagine this woman that was caught in the very act of adultery And brought before the Lord, in a sense, to see what's he going to do about this. What was good and true, in a sense, let's say, if we combine that with the idea of law, would have completely condemned her. When he lifts her up and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. Then he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more then I don't think that she looked at him as a God of law, as just a God of morality and ethics. But I think when that woman looked into the face of Jesus, she thought, this is a beautiful savior. Is he still beautiful to us? And my prayer for you would be the prayer of David. One thing I desire one thing I ask and that I will seek, to gaze upon the beauty. And I don't think that we can bring forth the beauty of the Lord if we don't ourselves gaze upon it. And as we're bathed ourselves in that redemptive beauty and we're filled, then the spirit of the Lord's upon us to bring forth beauty for ashes. I believe that we live in a time now where the Holy Spirit is moving in completely new paradigms, that perhaps traditional ways of communicating the gospel, the gospel doesn't lose its power, but we have to also be relevant for the times that we live in. I work in Europe consistently. We did a performance there in Bulgaria not too long ago. After the performance, this young man came up. His name was Michelangelo. He looked at me and he said, what the hell was that? I said, excuse me? He said, dude, I'm a professional dancer. I've been around dance all my life. Now, what your dancers just did, what the hell was that? I said, what are you talking about? He said, man, I'm shaking. Like, I am shaking. I felt something that was so deep. What is this? And I said, buddy, you're going to have to rephrase your question. He said, huh? I said, Michael, Angelo, you just asked me what the hell was this? And it's the wrong question. You need to be asking me what the heaven is this? Because, buddy, that's what you just encountered. You just encountered heaven. You just encountered the beauty and the glory of God. And you've never felt that before, have you? He said, dude, you're right. I said, are you ready? (laughs) Are you ready? Because it's a gift. His beauty is his gift. And it's his gift to us all. May the beauty of the Lord be upon you and establish the work of your hands and the work of your hearts, your relationships, your vocation, your calling. And may the next time someone looks into the Christian community, into our faith, may they say, wow, that's beautiful. It's almost as if heaven has come God bless you guys. Thank you.